welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to another episode of Note Doctors. Thank you so much for joining us for this uh, exciting episode where we are not only interviewing one guest, but two. We have two fantastic guests, colleagues of Ben at the University of North Texas from the Jazz Department. Is it a Jazz Department? Division of Jazz? Jazz area? Division of Jazz Studies. Division of Jazz Studies. And so we're excited to talk with them. Before we do that, we do want to remind you that we are going to be having an episode later this spring where we answer your messages, your emails. We, we, you don't have our phone number, so you can't text us. So we will not be answering texts, but we will be answering your messages. And so if you have a question, a comment that you want to have answered uh, or even read on the podcast, you can email us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram. You can give us a, send us a direct message. I think that's appropriate still to do. Is that right, Jen? Yes. Okay. You can still, okay. That's not, there's not something like an innuendo there with no. <laughs> okay that's good um and so again if you want to send us a little message note doctors podcast at gmail.com you can reach us and we're, we'll uh share your questions and your comments in, in a future episode so let's go to today where we are talking with two faculty members from the university of north texas where they're specifically going to be sharing things that jazz studies or jazz majors need to know from their theory and oral skills classes. So we have uh, Kimberly Hannon-Teal and Alan Baylock joining us. So let's see, uh, Jen, do you want to start us off telling us a little bit about um, Dr. Teal? Absolutely. She uh, has been a faculty member at UAT since August of 2021. So this is her first year there. And she's assistant professor of jazz history and research. Um, Her work addresses contemporary jazz, and she's interested in how live performance contexts contribute to musical experiences and meaning. Her book, Jazz Places, How Performance Spaces Shape Jazz History, was published by the University of California Press in 2021. She got a PhD in historical musicology from the Eastman School of Music, where she also taught music history and was the director of graduate advising. And her writing can be found in American Music, Jazz Perspectives, the Journal of the Society for American Music, Jazz Education in Research and Practice, and the Jazz Research Journal. Born and raised in a small town in southwestern Pennsylvania, Alan Baylock has composed music that is performed throughout the world. One of the most respected and sought-after jazz composers and educators in the industry today, he is the director of the Grammy-nominated Awanakak Lab Band at the University of North Texas. And previously, he served 20 years as chief arranger for the United States Air Force Airmen of Note in Washington, D.C. Baylock travels extensively as a guest conductor and clinician, and he has been featured with close to 100 professional collegiate high school and middle school jazz ensembles. Alan is on the faculty at National Jazz Workshop, or NJW, and directed the NJW All-Star Big Band and performances on the East and West Coast. 
He's an active member of the Jazz Education Network and is a strong advocate for women in jazz. His music is published by Alfred Music and ProJazzCharts.com. To me, the core of what we do in jazz is similar to what any other genre of music does. We just have extra stuff, um, not even on top. We just have extra stuff around. Um, but so much of it, is, I mean, the vast majority of it is the same. I think even just from a jazz listening perspective, it, I see people have this as an aha moment when they suddenly re- realize that it's a cyclic form and that the improvising is happening over the same harmonies as the melody, which maybe sounds really basic to us, but I think a lot of people don't realize. And so like learning a 12 bar blues and a rhythm changes progression and being able to hear them and understand what's happening, I think helps people demystify jazz improvisation a little bit. All right. So today our very special guests are Alan Baylock and Kim Teal. We've got two guests for us. Usually we only have one, but we have two. Um, and so we're super excited to have you two join us to talk about really what um, jazz students uh, need in their theory and oral skills courses. So we're really excited to talk with you about um, all those things. Uh, before though we before uh, we get into that, we want to just we always like to ask our guests a little bit how they got into music, how they found themselves in this uh, in the space that there are. So just in a couple of minutes, uh, just let us know kind of where you kind of came from and how you found yourself here. And since you both are in the jazz area, if you could scat your bio, that would be even better. But, you know, you can speak it. That's fine, too. Sure. Well, um I am a musicologist, uh, mostly, so I am kind of a recovering trumpet player like Alan. Um, He still has his trumpet out on his desk right now, so he's a little closer to it than I am, but um, I sort of found my way gradually to musicology over the course of my undergraduate program where I went in thinking maybe I was going to do music ed and I fell in love with music history and um, all along through there uh, jazz was something I was doing with any extra time or elective classes I could scrape together and then eventually it became my research interest as a as a musicologist in graduate school and so um, a lot of the way that I've mostly used jazz theory is from a, an analysis perspective. And, you know, I do have a little bit of that experience that our students that we're talking about today have in terms of using it practically to improvise. But I actually just, I just asked all my students this morning, what some of your questions, what do they need to know about jazz? So I'm, I'm ready to report back to you on that. <laughs> Great. How about you, Alan? Yeah, as Kim said, I'm also a recovering trumpet player. I do need to confess, though, that yes, there's a trumpet in my Zoom screen here, but there is no mouthpiece in the trumpet. (laughs) It makes a better lamp at this point than it does uh, an actual instrument. Um, But yeah, I grew up in southwest Pennsylvania, and uh, I wanted to be Maynard Ferguson. That's what I wanted to do. Um, In terms of touring acts, that's who I heard the most, uh, because he was hitting every little medium and large sized town throughout the country. Um, But I was always fascinated with composition and arranging. Um, And I got into that, especially when I um, got to high school and I had a very hip band director who 
allowed me to experiment with writing music, which to me is just theory, non-theoretically anymore. It's just theory applied, you know, put to paper. Um, but uh, the first time I ever heard about jazz theory was a little thing called Jazz AIDS, which was a, a, a small little short book that, uh, well, it was a pamphlet that Jamie Ebersole had put together. And, you know, he was talking about the modes of the major scale and all that stuff and what to play over this G7 and what to play differently if it's a G7 flat nine. So that was early on again, maybe my sophomore year in high school. And I, it was all foreign to me. I had all my trumpet lessons were based on trumpet. I did some piano, but they didn't, my teachers didn't talk about theory there either. Um, so by the time I got to undergrad, I was writing a lot and still playing, but always still fascinated with aural skills. And I remember my first sight singing class, I'm looking around and looking at all the vocal majors and I'm like, well, this isn't fair. There were singers. But then I realized very quickly that as an instrumentalist, we actually had a huge advantage because we could push buttons, you know, um, <laughs> that was, that was uh, an epiphany for me. Um, and then of course I came to North Texas for my grad degree. And um, that's where the, I really got to cut my teeth composing and arranging. I still did play. Um, but uh, again, it was, it was a fasc fascination, I think with theory and um, initially applied to the piano to what that sounds like. And then applied to composition and arranging that that's still, I mean, I am a, I'm, I'm glad I'm here with friends. I'm assuming I'm a theory geek and I'm not embarrassed to say that at all. I love it. When I do guest artist things, I was in North Dakota just last weekend. We talked about theory. I had people come to the piano and say this, it says D flat major 13 sharp 11. It looks like a different language. It looks like Greek. All you gotta do is play a C minor pentatonic. And it's going to sound amazing because it highlights all the cool notes. And, you know, you see light bulbs either turning off or turning on, you know, depending on their level. <laughs> but uh, I, I love it. And then, you know, I did 20 years with the Air Force writing and composing and then came back uh, in 2016 here to UNT. And uh, yeah, so that's a bit of my story in, in a nutshell. But yeah, I've always been fascinated and still like I can't. And I know several of my children are like this. Also, you can't really listen to a piece of music with subconsciously analyzing it um and i love the especially our youngest when when dom first started saying dad that's the four minor in it yeah that's right that four minor goes very cool back into the one it's because the you know it's because there's two half steps that both resolve you know to the third and then the fifth it's fantastic isn't it so, i mean i think we should have your son on next as a guest he sounds pretty awesome oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's true he could hang <laughs> or Michael. Cause Michael had me for theory class. So he can really talk about me. He can throw me under the bus pretty quick. Good. Yeah. Let's, let's have Michael on first then. <laughs> the Baylock family episode. I'm really looking forward to this. <laughs> oh man. That'd be too good. That'd be too good. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you both is reflecting on your own experience in the theory class you know alan kind of talked about aural skills um and kimmy kind of talked about balancing jazz it's like you know having jazz kind of on the fringe but like your interest was more musicological reflecting on that what was your experience like what are the things that you kind of used the most what are the things that you kind of used the least uh and then where are we today in, in relation to that um where do you where do you weigh in sure well i was thinking about this and 
I always enjoyed my theory classes, but sort of in the same way that I enjoyed my calculus class at some times. And if you asked me to do any calculus right now, it would be a bad scene. Um, so, you know, for example, if you asked me to do some post-tonal analysis right now, it it wouldn't go well, right? <laughs> so I know I used to know how to do that, but it didn't turn right. into a skill that I you know, use and need every day. So um, there was that nerdy level of enjoyment, but um, in terms of a certain level of abstraction that I associate with my music theory learning, there's some things that I haven't necessarily kept and carried forward. For sure, for sure. No, that's true for me. And I'm like a professional music theorist. And there's stuff that I've learned that I think I don't use this on a daily basis, you know, or I'll teach it one time for a half class period, then boom, done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think my experience was similar. There are things that are seem very applicable and right in the wheelhouse of what we do. Then there's some ex extempor not extemporaneous, there's some extra stuff that is fun to learn or maybe even helps your brain develop as an 18 year old. Um, but isn't something we use every day, you know, um, for me, I think specifically the thing that I could have done without, although it was fun to learn was figured base. We spent a lot of time on figured base and I can see a correlation between jazz chord nomenclature and figured base. Um, but again, it's fun to know, but that's not a skill I have ever used. <laughs> um, <laughs> Again, it's fascinating the fact that they were ex extrapolating chords and inversions and stuff out of just those little numbers, kind of like what we do in jazz. Um, the RL skills, also like the intervals and, of course, the modes of the major scale, all, all that stuff, I think, is applicable also. And that was fun. In terms of the RL skills, um, we had a guy named Don Black, who was a cellist and a Dixieland clarinet player. He conducted the orchestra. He was a very, very well-rounded musician. And he had us do a lot of dictation and transcription. So he would play some four-part part Bach chorales and we'd have to transcribe them just by ear. And I think that was very helpful, especially being a, a jazz musician, you know, decades later or even a few years later. That skill was really helpful. So not only the aural recognition, of what you're looking at, but the RO recognition where you actually write it down. And I think that was, for, for, again, for me, it was really fun. For some classmates, it was like a nightmare <laughs> um, because they didn't, maybe A, their brain didn't think like that, or maybe their brain didn't have experience to think like that. Um, I do think there's a, there is a natural aptitude for, um, for, for theory, for music theory. Um, it seems that it's easier to comprehend by some folks and a bit more difficult for others. Um, but for me, it was always just so fun. And here's a funny story also. So Don Black would always list everybody's grades by their last four of the social security number. Those right? days are gone. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> right. So, I wouldn't want well, them back anyway, but they're definitely gone. <laughs> yeah, this was, well, this was back in the eighties. Yeah, late eighties. So one year I got the highest grade in RL skills, right? Cause the last four of my social security was, well, I can tell you the last four. Well, I shouldn't anyway. Somebody might figure it out. <laughs> There's a anyway, lot of Russian. One, you know, four, hackers. five, one. We'll say it was one, four, five, yeah, one. Yeah, one, four, five, <laughs> one. <That's laughs> the rest was three, six, two, five. Yeah, anyway. Uh, so 
And then the next year at the end of the spring semester, I go back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have the record from last year too. It was my good friend, Rob Kennan. He also got the highest grade the year after me and his last four of his social security numbers were magically the same as mine. <laughs> I thought I had a two year record, but no, he, it was fun. I don't know. It was, it was, it was, it was fun. Um, and, and also the, we might get there uh, in a little bit, but I just do want to mention that to me, the core of what we do in jazz is similar to what any other genre of music does. We just have extra stuff. Um, not even on top. We just have extra stuff around. Um, but so much of it, is, I mean, the vast majority of it is the same. Yeah. Um, I mentioned I was talking with my students right before this. It was sort of kismet. We happened to be talking in this graduate jazz studies research class this week about public facing ways to express your research. And today we were going to talk about podcasts. So I was like, hey, guys, help me make a podcast. And they are all master students who were reflecting back on their undergraduate jazz studies experience and theory classes they took all over the country. And, you know, the very first thing someone said about their undergraduate theory experience and being a jazz musician was it's all relevant, you know, that that they really feel like it is stuff that they need. And then some of their biggest things that they would say they would have loved to have be different is to understand how it was relevant earlier on just to have that connection made for them at 18 and 19 that, yeah, you really do need to know Roman numeral analysis, not just because this is a cool bot corral, but because you're going to need to be able to transpose a tune and that's going to make it so much easier for you. Just sort of being able to see those connections. Yeah. That's really come good. up on this podcast a lot. We did a special episode on corralling the corral because it seems to have such a like ubiquitous presence in theory classes, but you can still get a lot of the outcomes from doing other things that are way more applicable and practical. And we had we had a whole episode on that. So if you're more interested in corralling the corral, definitely listen to that episode. Um, but yeah, and figured bases come up a lot. You know, where does figured base come in? Do we eliminate it completely? Do we just do on occasion? You know a realization of, okay, when you see these numbers below, what does that mean? And then not go as far, you know, as, as we would have done 10 years ago, let's say, you know, that's, that's come up um, in a lot of different episodes in a lot of different ways. So it's nice to hear that yeah. from, from y'all as well. The other thing my students wanted you to corral is sonata form. They said enough already, right? We got it. We're taking three classes that are teaching us sonata form at the same time. It's, you know, if we were at the Paris Conservatory in 1822, okay, but, you know, here we are. That's good to hear. We just voted out Sonata Form of our theory core. Oh, wow. Oh, I will will let them know. They will celebrate. It's in form analysis, but it's not in the core sequence anymore. Yeah, that's. So now it's it's Sonata Form. That's great. Uh-oh, the puns are coming out. <laughs> you know, that's funny, though, because it's interesting because in my in my ignorance, when I learned about Sonata form, that was one of the reasons I think I was I gravitated more towards jazz because I thought there was much more freedom. Like, I didn't want to be boxed in by this Sonata form thing that I didn't I knew very little about. 
Um, but that was, again, one of the fascinating things about jazz for me is like, it didn't have that restriction. So, I mean, I know much more about it now, um, but yeah, sonata form. Well, you guys hit the two big ones. So um, post-tonal analysis and figure base are the things people always think we can probably live without. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the ones that come up most often. Yeah. So could and- you tell us about our jazz students like what are their career paths what do they want to study what are they interested in all of those things yeah i i mean for the folks that i work with most um are grad students i do a graduate level jazz conducting class and then of course i run the one o'clock lab band which is at this point about 50 percent undergrad 50 percent graduate uh, we have a freshman drummer which is fascinating uh first time in over 50 years that that's happened but then you know i have a doctoral student who's much closer to my age than anybody else. Um, uh, so at the, le- I would, I'll speak for those folks. Um, uh, most of them continue to play for a living. Um, they'll of course have to do or not have to, they'll take advantage of teaching privately, maybe at an institution if they continue to get a, another degree. Um, some of them continue uh, on a, in a different career. Um, some become business people and it's, it's a variety of things. Um, but again, most of them are young enough to kind of be excited about a piecemeal type of career. Um, a, I've had students that go up to the DC premier bands where I was, which is a great, a great thing happening. Ben, you probably know some of those uh, yep. folks. Um, so it, it, it what makes me sad is when they come to Denton, and stay in Denton. Like, I think this is a great place to launch. Um, and so of course the undergrads, some go to get a master's degree and so on and so forth. Um, but it, you know, it's, it makes me a little sad when they just kind of get sucked into the Dallas scene, which is full of incredible musicians because it's been happening for decades. Well, we're 75th anniversary of our jazz program, you know? So, but if I, I that's a long, kind of a long answer, but it, it really, it, it can be many things like my son, Michael, who had been for theory, he's moved to Dallas and he's living right in deep Ellum and he's touring as a bass player. He's touring with a country band. He plays in several Neo soul groups. He goes to jam sessions. He likes to go outside and hike with another friend of his named Mitch, who I know um, Kim, Kim knows. Um, but he eventually wants to move out of Dallas, but uh, huh. It's, it's, there's there's a lot to say about freelancing also. I don't know if that answered the question, but that's 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 what I see with the folks that that I get to work with most often. I think that that mostly covers what I would say too. They're doing a lot of playing, um, a lot of arranging, and they all recognize this need to play. You know, they want to play a lot of their own music and their original things that are interesting to them, and they're realistic about also like. I need to get paid. So I'm going to play pop songs in that wedding band. And I need the theory skills at the end of the day to learn that tune off the record and play a convincing version of it without much rehearsal. So yeah, since there needs to be a sure. lot of entrepreneurial kind of drive as well as really great musical chops to really kind of, to make it out there. Right. Yeah. Yes, I agree. And that's another great thing about our Dean, John Richmond. Uh, since I've been here in the last six years, we have the, the emphasis on entrepreneurship and music business has increased quite a bit. And I think it's uh, a wise thing because it 
affects all of us. I mean, it's, those are great skills. Even if you just dip your foot into that water, it can be critically important. Okay. I mentioned the Dean once I'm good. <laughs> he really I don't think I've ever met. Does he listen to this? I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> if I say, Hey, John, I mentioned your name in this podcast. Yeah. He'll listen to it. <laughs> he's, he's really a great guy and, and a, a, a visionary uh, administrator. I think that's what well, he wanted me to say. <laughs> I would agree with that. I totally would. I, I think he's, he's done great things here, especially with uh, entrepreneurship uh, program. Yeah. Well, my question, I guess, as a follow-up to this, I don't think that many of the students at UNT in jazz studies are going to pursue this kind of singular path where they're only playing or they're only teaching or they're only, you know, it seems to be they're pursuing a lot of things at the same time. They're arranging a tune, they're playing, and they're also uh, involved in uh, a lot of different entrepreneurial activities. How do we, as, as theory instructors, how do we best kind of address all of those needs? You know, what, what are some of the things that we should be doing? Um, in our classes to prepare them for all these different career paths, because that's challenging. You know, when I sit and I see all those people in the recital hall in front of me, I think, wow, these people are going to be doing how many different things? How can I possibly put together this lesson um, that's going to get every single person really sucked in, right? They're going to really be enriched by this 50 minutes. Um, and any insight you can offer me on that? I know that's a hard question, but I would love to hear and i think a lot of our listeners are interested in this type of question so i'm going to borrow an answer from one of my students this morning august who confessed that he almost wanted to be a music theorist like that, that's how excited <laughs> he was by his undergraduate music theory program he said he just had great engaging classes and he said that one of the things that he did in class that was most engaging was being told to go out and find the theoretical concept in the wild. Like you go find your own examples. So then he's going to find it in his own music and the 199 other people in the class can go and find it in their own music. Just giving students not only a chance to make it feel relevant, but also a lot of responsibility to be self-directed and to take control of their musical life and their career. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic point. Making it relevant to what they're listening to is, you know, beyond how we learned intervals, you know, the tritones, the Simpsons and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, finding uh, actual application of it in the music that they're most excited about. I think that's a great idea, you know, and that you get the self-motivation because, you know, um, I was personally, I was kind of a jazz snob. And so when I got to, um, when I got to undergrad, I was roommating with a classical violinist and he had an album and it said um, both harmonica and wiener on it. Cause it said it was the wiener philharmonica, you know, of course it was Vienna, <laughs> but I thought that was a hilarious thing. Like, why would I ever listen to something like that? So I was a little snobby. And then the theory class was all European art music, right? There was wow. no talk of any pop music, no American music. Um, it was all that what I considered antiquated and completely irrelevant. Had I not been fascinated with the actual theory itself, regardless of the genre, I would have been really turned off. So I like what Kim said there. And I like how August was able to share that, making it exciting for 
for what they listen to. Cause you know, we, we can tell them what we're excited about, but uh, it's more, way more motivating and more life-changing potentially if we're talking about their stuff and most of the music they're going to listen to, of course, has all this stuff in it, you know, of course. I mean, you can, I mean, whatever, really there's, there are very few examples of music that don't have theory at all. Right. I mean, right. I don't know. So yeah, I like that. I, I wish I would have had that in undergrad. This is a little off script, I guess, but I was going to ask if either of you had a jazz theory class in undergrad. I teach one and I love it, but I never took that class. So when I went about, you know, trying to figure out how to teach it, I kind of had to figure out myself what that should even look like. Um, And you've both mentioned having kind of regular theory classes, learning things like figure base, all of that. Did you study actual jazz theory in undergrad at all? Yeah, Yeah, I did. I had a, a, a jazz theory class that was really helpful to me as a mostly classical trained person who was trying to teach myself to improvise, you know, at a, at a place where it was too late that I was ever going to apply to like be a jazz studies major. Um, so that was a really good opportunity for me to get to kind of pick up and run with this interest. Yeah, for me, I, I did not have a jazz theory in undergrad, um, most of my jazz theory was either self-discovered or learned through learning how to compose and arrange. Um, so, um, I remember my first arranging teacher in undergrad, we talked about theory constantly again, cause it's the meat. I mean, it's, it's the heart of composing and arranging. Um, so I think most of the knowledge that I got again was stuff I kind of discovered thanks to Jamie Eversole and beyond, but also in the process of learning how to compose and arrange. Yeah, I wonder I mean, if, yeah. Yeah, yeah for, I mean, it's really impossible to, to do one without the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder what you would recommend for someone who doesn't have a jazz theory class in their curriculum, but wants to incorporate jazz into their theory core in some element, you know, some at some point in the four semesters, they want to get to that jazz unit or something like that. What do you think they need to have in there? Because there's, of course, you could spend semesters and semesters studying jazz theory, but what are the kind of the core things that would be most important for, you know, in that unit on jazz theory to cover for the, for the, for those students? Um, I'll jump in, I guess. um, I think one unique aspect of what we do is the chord nomenclature. So the spelling and understanding of chords, be them tertial or quartal, would be critically important because that's that is one thing beyond the theory core that is unique with jazz. And once a student can understand what D flat major 13 sharp 11 means, then they can understand how to improvise on it, which of course is another unique, fairly unique aspect of, of jazz. So I think it would be critically important to understand um, those extended harmonies that come from, of course, Faré and all those beautiful French folks, or even Bach. I mean, he was doing major seven chords mm-hmm. you know, centuries before that. We just didn't call him that. That's um, right. But I think that would be important. Um, the modes of the harmonic minor, modes of the major scale, that's also 
very important for a jazz improviser to understand. We talk about scales a lot. Um, so that would be another aspect, you know, uh, and there's one other thing I wrote down and I can't read my writing. So I'll stop right there. <laughs> I'm also going to throw in forms um, because I think even just from a jazz listening perspective, it, I see people have this as an aha moment when they suddenly re realize that it's a cyclic form and that the improvising is happening over the same harmonies as the melody, which maybe sounds really basic to us, but I think a lot of people don't realize. And so like learning a 12 bar blues and a rhythm changes progression and being able to hear them and understand what's happening, I think helps people demystify jazz improvisation a little bit. That is spot on because that I think that's for my non-jazz technique client students. That's what they're like, okay, they hear the tune and then these people start playing random notes for the next 10 minutes, right? What's happening? And so we we just did um, a listening of I Got Rhythm and, and the rhythm changes. And so we learned, we sang the tune, right? And then they have, you know, the, they started improvising. We, we sang the melody with them. We're like, Oh, it mm -hmm. just fits right in. Oh, and you hear when they goes to the little secondary dominant chain in the middle there. And then they're like, okay, we can, you know, we can figure out where we are in these forms. And you're right. It is just kind of this like theme and variation. And once you kind of know that, then it's like, okay, now you can get into what they're actually playing, things like that. But the form is yeah. a really critical thing, especially for listeners who will never improvise you know, professionally or in front of folks, but you want them to be jazz listeners and to go to concerts, things like that, and to have a kind of a foot into how, you know, how that music kind of works on a form level. It's great. Yeah. And if you really want to like notice their minds being blown, have them count measures along with a drum solo and realize the drummer's keeping the form too. And then they're just like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I stole this from Paul, who taught our jazz theory class before I did um, here at my university. But I make them do the same thing, Paul, but with St. Thomas. Oh, yeah. Because it has yeah. a big drum solo and it works. While they're singing it, they're like, why are we doing this? And then when you get to the end and it lines up perfectly, they're like, whoa, it's <laughs> very cool. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's good. Yeah, I definitely take some stuff for granted. We did both rhythm changes and St. Thomas. St. Thomas I did in theory four and I had him flip it over and I did an inversion. So what would it be if you inverted the St. Thomas motif, which was kind of fun. Um, and then I proceeded directly to Frozen too. But anyways, <laughs> the other day, I think I take for granted their knowledge of form all the time. I just threw out, they were talking about falling fists and I said, yeah, you know, like the B section of, of rhythm changes. And then there was a group of about, you know, 20 or 30 of them, they were like, leaning in and then there were like 70 to 80 of them that were like wait what you know like what's the b section of of rhythm changes i was like okay hold on let me back up again you know and i just kind of took it for granted that that they knew that the form you know it was it was a different section it wasn't it wasn't the a anymore but yeah that's that's a great point and something that is really accessible to them that's not like hard to teach that you know that's that's really something that's low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, just music theory, pedagogically connecting better. I was going to say the same students. exact, yeah, I was going to say the same exact thing that even for the, the students who maybe haven't been exposed to that much jazz, the forms that are in jazz are also, also make up a lot of the form in popular music. So the blues yep. and rhythm changes, or even just the song form like AABA, 
a lot of popular right. music takes those same styles. So it's easy. That's an easy line to draw, to connect with music that they listen to every day, all the time. Um, so yeah, I, we do the blues in theory too. And of course we do all of that in jazz theory, but yeah, they write a little blues in theory too. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I think that's great. And that's, if that's step one of demystifying the improvisation process, that's fantastic. Cause I, I I'll remember the rest of my life being in the air force band and there was a tuba player who had been in over 20 years and still thought that the members of the airmen would just get up there and play whatever they wanted. You know, so when you're improvising, you just get up and do whatever you want. You had no concept that a, you can actually practice improvisation B like Kim said, and you all were saying that there's a structure that we solo over. I was just blown away. And this is like a really good tuba player. Yeah. Well, there's not, not much like improvisation in like Hindemith tuba sonata and stuff like that. So true. Right. Fair true. Enough. Fair enough. Their name started favorite, with like Sergeant. I'll, I'll give you that much. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I was going to say there's a favorite like Mythbuster thing I like to do in classes as soon as because it it always happens that when I play a jazz piece and we're studying a jazz piece, that somebody will be like, "Well, but there aren't any rules in jazz, right. or there aren't any," and and I'm like. No, that is 100% false. And to imply that people just get up and play whatever they want. Actually, I think I think sometimes people think that's a respectful thing to say, like, oh, look how talented they are. They're just making totally new things up off the top of their head. But it actually, I think it's it's the opposite. It doesn't give a big enough nod to the amount of knowledge it takes to improvise well and to learn that skill. So I love debunking that myth in class. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah that has lots of rules. I mean, not really rules, but like principles that guide it. Right. And then people will get into, well, how about Ornette Coleman? It sure, certainly doesn't sound like, well, yeah, Ornette Coleman, they, that's the melody. There's the form. There's the B section. I mean, Lonely just, Woman is A-A-B-A. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it just doesn't hit you over the head with it, you know, but yeah, it's all there. And that's, yeah. There are, there are, that's one big myth to be debunked. The other is, yeah, free jazz is just free jazz. I mean, free jazz is when you go and there's no cover charge. They <laughs> <laughs> just want to even show up. <laughs> well, yeah, right. <laughs> Anybody, please come. Please come to my free, free jazz show. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a, a friend in undergrad and he called his jazz group free beer. So anytime they were advertising the band, it was actually, people thought it was free beer. <laughs> it was a that was even before the entrepreneurship got heavy there you know that's great marketing. that's genius so we've talked a bit that's about awesome. the theory aspect but of course the you know if you are playing jazz your aural skills really have to be top notch and so can you talk a little bit about the kind of the aural skills uh, and that musicianship side that students really need to get um, in their ear training or their aural skills types of courses um, maybe this is like a bad left turn right now, but another thing that that comes to mind in terms of students' aural engagement with music is um, learning a sense of rhythm and groove that they're only going to get through listening and, and valuing that as a way we talk about and frame music and how music is put together and as an element of theory. But probably you wanted to talk about the fact that, yeah, they really need to know 
how to identify harmonies and chord qualities. Uh, right I think that's, I here. love that actually, because I think we, we prioritize harmony because we can analyze it and we can easily you know, see it and we can write it. But rhythm, just as a short little aside, I had my students do like a blues improv. And these are just like normal theory students, no jazz majors or anything like that. And it was pretty terrible because most of them could not swing. Like they couldn't get the feel. And I'm like, I, I need to change the way I'm doing this uh, because just the rhythmic aspect, which I felt was just like this natural thing, a lot of them could not just get that blues kind of that swing feel. And it was just really bad, but the rhythmic aspect and the feeling of that groove, I think is spot on Kim. Yeah. Even snapping on two and four can be a real challenge for somebody that doesn't have that background, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So that's, I'm, I'm glad that was mentioned also. I typically attribute it to the fact that instrumentalists, we deal with notes before we deal with rhythms. Percussionists, of course, it can be different but rhythm usually comes later and it's obviously a huge of huge importance in jazz improvisation. And, you know, I think that's an important tool. People talk about transcribing and transcribing helps your ears, writing it down can help your arranging composition skills. Um, but that notation will never reflect exactly what was played. I remember saving up and getting a Clifford Brown transcription book and it was literally just the notes and the rhythms there wasn't even a single articulation. I was like, mm. okay, I'm going to play that. And it's not going to sound like Clifford Brown. So yeah, you absolutely have to go to the recording. And ideally you, you know, I mean, writing it down is, it is good for you, but it's, it's not necessary and can actually impede the progress of hearing because you do miss all those, those subtleties. And I, I tell, I mean, we don't have a jazz notation. We don't, we have, you know, the shake or the glissando that looks cool. Or we did we did uh, a gig two nights ago, and we, the band did a plop, you know, on a bassy tune. That was always fun. Um, but basically, we're reading European classical notation. And so how is that possibly going to indicate? How do we know what it's going to sound like? Well, you have to listen to it. So so the, the, the ear training aspect, it's one thing to notate it. I remember there was a guy named Luis Hernandez who was down here when I was here and he was transcribing by playing along with the solo. He did, he had no intention of writing it out. It was just, he wanted to, to hear and he wanted to play exactly like it. When Melissa Aldana was here uh, and I have the poster right here. She was here in 2018. Um, she put on a Ben Webster solo and played along with it. And she sounded exactly like Ben Webster. Then she went to a, uh, one other, I can't remember exactly who. And then she did a Chris Potter solo and exactly like Chris Potter. She doesn't sound like any of them, but it was an incredible way for her ears to get attuned and to get some ideas under her fingers so she can have her own sound. Um, but so the, the transcription tool can be important in oral skills, but it's not, not, so it looks right yeah because that's that's irrelevant yeah that's, that's yeah, and even identifying the subtleties between what makes the ben webster different versus the other one like being able to actually compare those and then play the differences and identify that that's one thing that's come up a lot here too is along the lines of not just dictation for writing it down but uh internalizing and then determining error detection or given like, instead of giving our students always a piano, you know, for playing, let's say even some changes or something, we could have them 
looking at a, a combo, a tune for a combo, and then this combo plays it. What would you tell them? You know, what, what were they doing well? What were they not doing well? And that could be uh, feedback in terms of style. That could be feedback in terms of pitch, certainly, but it could also be feedback in terms of the groove and all, all these kinds of elements interact, interacting, you know, and creating those kind of uh, opportunities for our students, you know, instead of just sitting back at the piano and playing one, four, five, one every day, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not saying that's a bad activity, but there's a lot more than to be had there, you know? Right. Well, and piano doesn't have the in-between notes either that the horns do or the vocalists do. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, this has been such a treat. And I know, I know you need to step out soon, Alan. So I want to respect your time and, and Kim, your time as well. And so this has been super fun and hopefully we can get maybe you all back on and bring your kids, Alan, and we can have a good old theory nerd sesh. Um, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's funny you say that because we'll take it back to Brock, Brock Corral's. So we have four copies of that blue Bach Corral book. And mm -hmm. one of the things we do, um, because there's four of us here and then one of our kids is still in the DC area, but for fun, we'll sit around and just sightseeing Bach Corral's. It's, it's <laughs> fun. And if you do the, the soul fish, you know, you get extra cookies. <laughs> oh, that's amazing i oh, love that great. um yeah and so as we as we close up um do you want to do maybe one rapid fire just do you ben or jen do you have one you want to go I have with one okay jen go for it all right favorite real book lead sheet to use as a teaching tool for theory i know it's hard <laughs> um dolphin dance Herbie Hancock. Yeah. Okay. What do you like about it? Um, the composition, the, the way he develops the first four note motif is just beautiful. Great. I recently started a class with 30 versions of Stardust to talk about what is a song anyway? Do we have a definition? Does it have borders? What has to be there for it to still be Stardust? Oh, I love that. That's so good. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That's great. Well, that's, that's 30 awesome. versions. That's crazy. That's awesome. <laughs> it was a, a real Spotify. Yeah, a long Spotify <laughs> playlist there. <laughs> that's great. And then our last little thing, just, uh, just let our listeners know just a little bit or how they can find you, maybe an email or a website, and Real quickly, what what current project you have going on? Um, well, folks can find me in Florida the next coming week. Um, if not, this is coming out Monday, so actually, this will be. You, oh. this is actually, if they listen to it on Monday, they can find you on Friday. Fantastic! I'll be in Jackson Jacksonville, Florida, at Douglas Anderson School of the Arts on Monday. Uh, and then, yeah, the easiest thing is just to go to um, you can just Google Alan Baylock UNT. Um, and then my email address is alan.baylock at unt.edu. Um, of course, I'm on, I'm trying to do less social media, but I do have music and personal pages on uh, Facebook and Instagram as well. And th that was a two part question. Yeah, you got, you got it both. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Uh, I am also best found uh, on the UNT website. My email is Kimberly.HannonTeal at UNT. And my current project is on jazz museums and the political economy of jazz. So I'm kind of digging into um, ideas about how we represent jazz history to the general public. That's great. Oh, that's awesome. I'm excited. Okay. 
my current project, I forgot that was the, the other part. Um, we do an annual album with the one o'clock lab band. So I'm writing something new um, for lab 20 lab 2022. And it's called at any rate because the soloist gets to pick which tempo they, they play. Oh. in. So there's a little oh, solo nice. break with, with a, a riff and whatever, at whatever tempo they play that one bar break, the rhythm section catches on and the band goes on from there. Cool. Speaking of rhythm, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.